Welcome to Siege, a podcast about castles and crusades and other siege engine games, and whatever the hell else we want to talk about. I'm your host, Sam Dillon, and I am here with my wonderful co-host, George. Hi, I'm George Hardy. How are you tonight, George? I'm great. How are you, Sam? I am really good. I'm really good. What are we going to talk about tonight? Let's talk about combat part two. All right. Part two. That means that means what? What's part two? <laughs> um, tonight, we're going to cover a bunch of different things, options and clarifications, uh, pole arms, you know, uh, spells and movement types and different combat maneuvers. We got a full slate here. Awesome. Awesome. Well, let's start with um, the specifics of initiative. So as we mentioned last episode, initiative is a D10 role, and it determines the point in time in the round where your actions get resolved. So theoretically speaking, or maybe I should say technically speaking, the round combat round is simultaneous. So everybody's doing their thing at the same time, actually. But because it's a game, we have to f- have a way that is fair that allows us to have an order of adjudication that we can use to sort of know when we're going to resolve everyone's actions. That's what initiative is. It's a very basic concept. Everybody kind of knows what it is. If you've played RPGs in any way, shape, or form, most RPG systems have some sort of initiative structure. And in CNC, the initiative structure is you roll a D10. You start down a countdown, and when it, when we get from start with 10, whoever had rolled a 10, they get to go. Whoever rolled a 9 gets to go, then an 8, then a 7, and that's how it works. The thing to point out is that in Castles and Crusades, a round is 10 seconds long, and you only get to do one thing. You can either move, or you can cast a spell, or you can attack, or you can use an item, you can look for something in your backpack, Etc. Etc. There is an exception to that. We're going to talk about later, but in general, that's the rule. You get to do one thing in combat in the round, and normally you do not have to declare what you're doing before you roll initiative. But there are some exceptions to that as well, and the reason that there are exceptions is because when you do certain actions, it changes your armor class for the round. And if it changes your armor class for the round, it changes your armor class for the entire round, not just on your turn and after you've gone, but the entire round. So you have to declare before you roll initiative, and then it doesn't matter what you rolled. If you rolled a 10, you get to go and you get to do your action first, and that's great. And if you rolled a one, well, that whole round until it gets to your turn, everybody is dealing with you with your new AC, your altered AC. That's why that declaration is there in the rules for certain actions, but it does not apply to every action. So we will talk more about that in the future. George. Hey, Sam. What is the rules as written rule for rolling initiative? Does every single thing roll an initiative roll? I, individuals may roll for themselves and usually, I think most DMs roll for one group of opponents. Um, they don't break it up typically, although at times I think some DMs will. So, raw, everything rolls, though. Oh. Right? So, 10 kobolds will all have to roll. I mean, theoretically. That's true. So, rules is written, every creature or character rolls. But George brings up a good point, because that's actually a common option. 
I call that common option. I call that mixed initiative. That is all of the players roll initiative individually for their individual PCs and the CK rolls initiative, but basically does it by groups. So if you have kobolds and lizards in a combat, the kobolds get one initiative roll, the lizards get one other initiative roll. And on those rolls, on the roll for the for the kobolds, all the kobolds go on the roll for the lizards, all the lizards go in whatever order the, the CK deems, right? Yeah, I, I've actually used even uh, like for two groups of kobolds, let's say it's like two groups of 10, if they're attacking from different locations, I'll typically yep. roll two different initiatives. Yep. Or if they come in waves, right? Got some skeletons that are there at the beginning of the combat. After round four, another group comes in behind them. That group gets a different initiative roll. Yeah, I think it's pretty smooth to do it that way. Yeah. There is another option, though, and that is what is often referred to as side initiative it's a very common sort of house rule that that occurs with people that have played various different versions of D&D, and that is that uh, you just roll as a group. So the party gets one initiative and the monsters get a different initiative. So the CK rolls for all of the opponents and the party rolls for all the PCs, and then you – when you're when it's your side's turn, so if the PCs roll a nine and and the creatures roll a seven, that means the PCs all get to go first, and then they get to determine what order they act in. Yeah, there, there's really no wrong or right way of doing it. Uh, both have a lot of advantages and disadvantages mm-hmm. behind it. Yeah, I find that that side initiative works really well if the party wants to play very tactically and they want to determine who is going to do what first like if if a lot of their sort of combos or a lot of the way that they interact with each other requires for example the rune mark to act first in a round because he's going to cast a rune on something or the cleric to act first in a round because he's going to bless something right then you want to make sure that that pc gets to go early and if they consistently roll a one on their D10, they're never going to get to go early, right, if everybody's doing individual initiative. So sometimes group initiative is is popular. I personally think it slows the game down a bit because there's sometimes an argument or a discussion that has to happen every round about which PC is going first, which one's going next, who's going next. And if the group isn't acting like a well-oiled machine that can really slow things down. And, and I, I, I do not favor that. I favor rolling every round and everybody just has their own individual role and you just go from there. makes it very easy. It, it does contribute to the chaos of war mm-hmm. where, you know, I'm going to cast shield on this player mm-hmm. and the next moment they're gone. Right. Yeah. They, they rolled a higher initiative. So they ran away or they went somewhere. They charged something. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That'll blend in, I think, further down when we start talking about spells um, and not declaring. Yeah. So there is one kind of peculiarity that is actually a rules as written weirdness or oddity in the CNC rules. And that is what George and I refer to as pole arms go first when uh, really it's not just pole arms. It's any weapon uh, with reach greater than 10. If that person or that that character with that weapon is fighting something with a weapon less than a six foot reach. So your typical melee weapons are considered to have like a five foot reach. So if you have some some creature with a pole arm or a weapon that has a 10 foot or greater reach and they're fighting something that's has a non reach weapon, then that pole arm 
character, whether it's a PC or a creature, it gets to go first. Also, if you're large size, uh, if you're a large size creature and you're fighting a medium or small size creature, you get to go first. The thing is that these rules, the way they're written, it's a little bit misleading or maybe not misleading. It's it's up for interpretation because it mentions in the first round things with a polearm or things with a reach weapon get to go first. And that's not actually then what the rule is. The rule isn't in the first round. The rule is the first round in which those two individuals are in melee together. And the rule is also it only applies if the smaller creature or the creature with the shorter reach approaches the larger creature or the creature with the longer reach. And it's only the first moment of engagement between those two and if the smaller one is approaching. So there are uh, the rule often gets uh, individuals read the player's handbook and they read the first sentence and they say, oh, anything with a polearm goes first. They, they It's as if they rolled a 10 on their initiative in the first round of combat. They always get to go. And that's not really what it is. So that's why we wanted to talk about it in, in this in this particular episode, because the way the book describes it, it's not exactly clear. It says, quote, uh, when a creature uses a weapon with a reach of greater than 10 feet against an opponent with a weapon with less than six foot reach, or when a large creature is fighting a medium or smaller creature in the first round only, the creature with the longer reach or larger size is allowed to attack first. And that's really misleading. It's not in the first round only. It's in the first round where those two are engaged, okay, in melee. That's a good distinction. Yeah. And the reason I say that is because that is actually what the example shows. Okay. That's what the example shows. It's not every round. It's not the first round of combat. It's the first round in which they're engaged together. And it uh, counts uh, as the action for that round. So it's not like that large creature or the polearm fighter gets an extra attack or something. It just, that's their attack. And it just kind of switches their initiative for that moment because of the interaction between those two individuals. Okay. Samuel, here's something to maybe adjudicate with this. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't specify for a polearm what kind of attack is allowed. Um, would a character be able to do a trip attack, for example, with a polearm? What What do you mean? Are, are you asking in terms of the, the initiative for the – in terms of this initiative ruling, or are you asking actually about the polearm rules? Well, it would be for the initiative of the polearm. Yeah, so that that polearm attacker or whoever has the reach weapon, they just get to do their action first. They're allowed to attack first, and trip trip is a combat maneuver that's considered an attack action, so that count that would count. Interesting. Yeah, I think that would be a a useful tactic for some DMs or CKs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we'll get to why trip is a really weird kind of thing in a minute because we're going to talk about those combat maneuvers. As a CK, I love it. Yeah, so as this should be adjudicated, that polearm or the larger creature, that polearm fighter or the larger creature, they can do whatever attack they want. All it did was switch their initiative in that one particular instance and allow them to have an attack on that smaller creature or the creature with the smaller weapon first. That's that's literally it. Okay, it's written actually to make it more confusing than it is. Okay, right. Agreed. Yeah. So the next thing we wanted to talk about are spells. And there's two sort of things regarding spellcasting that are often asked about uh, in in various uh, circles where people talk about this game. And one of them is casting time for a spell, and one of them is concentration 
for a spell. So casting time, these rules are found on page 113 of the player's handbook, eighth and later printings. And basic, basically every spell has a casting time number in its, in its spell listing. And the casting time, uh, it tells you how many rounds it takes for that spell to come into effect. So a spell that has a CT of one, casting time of one, that means it takes one round to cast. And that means it comes into effect on the caster's initiative during that turn for that round. So if the caster rolled a 10, that spell is going to get cast right away. If the caster rolled a one, they're going to have to wait till it becomes their time for that spell to actually take effect. This is also one of those things that that if you did side initiative, you could always let your caster go first if you're if your side won initiative, right? But if it didn't win initiative, you could still let your caster go first before all the rest of the PCs, but the creatures would go first in that case. Um, so here's the thing, George. How long if if it, if a if a spell has a casting time greater than one, what what does that mean? When does that spell actually go off? At the top of the round? Spells that take more than one round to cast come into effect during the caster's initiative turn on the last round of the casting time for the spell. So if uh, that caster is casting um, Consecrate, a second level cleric spell with casting time of three, three rounds, um, it would happen on the caster's initiative turn of that last round. Right. On round three. Yeah. Correct. So in other words, they have to start cast. They have to say they're going to cast it in round in their turn in round one. And then it doesn't go off until it gets to their turn in round three. And that caster is doing nothing else for those three rounds. Not moving. Not moving, not doing another spell, not talking to anybody, not defending themselves, nothing. They're doing nothing else. Which brings up something that is actually in the book that is a little bit of a contradiction. In this section of the player's handbook, it says, quote, most castle keepers make you announce at the beginning of the round whether you are going to cast a spell, end quote. That's on page 113. But here's the thing. The rules where it talks about casting in the magic section, in the character class sections, and in the combat section, never, ever, ever say that you have to declare your casting action. Okay, so this this passage on page 113 is not supported in any other place in the player's handbook, and the CK is not directed in the combat section to have casting be a declared action. Remember, I mentioned earlier that some of those combat maneuvers, it specifically says these actions must be declared before initiative is rolled. This is not one of those actions. This is not an an action that does that. So all that to say… It says most cap- castle keepers. Uh, that's just that's not in the rules. So I actually don't think most castle keepers make you do that. In fact, I think no castle castle keepers. I I have never played in a, I've played in a lot of games, a lot of different castle keepers, and I've run a lot of different games. I've never had a castle keeper ask me to declare my spells unless I was playing in a game with a castle keeper who made every action declared, like everybody had to declare their actions all the time. Then right. you declare that you're casting, but. At, in no game have I been in which they cause the casters to declare if they're going to cast that turn. I've never played in a game that has. Have you? Do you make the casters declare? Um, never in Castles and Crusades have I done that. Yeah. Um, 
I may ask out of just, you know, curiosity. Curiosity. Yeah. Yeah. Like, what are you, yeah. what are you guys going to do? Like that kind of thing. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and the good part is, um, and we'll get into this with concentration, but um, this is the time when you have wiggle room. If you are required to tell the castle keeper that you're going to cast a spell, you know, you might want to trade in that zero level spell that you were going to cast as opposed to that third level spell and you lose it in your concentration. Right. So the thing is that if you, if your castle keeper makes you declare and you say, I'm casting a spell, remember that's all you can do. You can't move out of the way. You can't dive for cover. You can't do anything else or you'll lose the spell automatically. By the way, you, you technically, I, I guess could, if you had a nice CK who said, Oh yeah, that, arrows coming right for you and you dodge out of the way, but you have to dive for cover or it's going to hit you like you're going to lose your spell. Right. Um, but rules is written. If you, if you declare and then you roll, say a one on your D 10 initiative roll. Now there's nine rounds ahead of you where you could get hit by something and it could cause you to lose the spell. The, this section also says, and this is basically, and this is another quote right out of there. It says, those castle keepers who do not require declaration may disallow any spell in the same round in which you were hit before your initiative turn. In other words, if you declare that you're going to cast and then you roll a one initiative, if you get hit at all, they might just say, well, your your spell is ruined. You don't even get a save or anything. And that actually brings us to the concentration rules because the question is, what the heck are we talking about losing your spell? And that's about concentration. So, George, what is concentration? Concentration is um, if someone interrupts your spell, you make a concentration check to see if you can continue casting the spell. So technically, wait, wait, technically, that's not true. Technically, if something interrupts that character while they're casting, the spell is lost. There is no save. Whether there's a save is the CK's choice. Oh, okay. Yeah. Now, I don't know about you. Well, I do know about you, actually. You would allow a save, (laughs) right? You would allow a save because that's more fair. feels more fair, right? I allow a save as well because it feels more fair, right? Or, or for example, I give the player a choice like what I just mentioned a second ago of if they're about to get hit, I might allow them to actually dodge that hit, but then they then they lose their spell. Then it's their choice, right? If they get hit, they take the damage and they got to make a save to keep the spell. If they just dodge the hit, they don't take any damage, but they lose the spell. And that's a choice. That's also a house rule. That's not actually rules as written. An interesting idea, too. And this is from more of a 3.5 Pathfinder type setup Mm -hmm. is um, and I didn't never saw anything in castles about this, but there is no mention that that character uh, loses their dexterity modifier either while casting a spell. Correct. That's right. You do not lose your dexterity modifier just because you're casting. That's correct. There is no flat-footed, for example. Isn't that, isn't that <laughs> flat? That's flat-footed in third edition, right? Yes. You, you yeah. lose your dex. Yeah. There, that does not happen here except su- if you're surprised, right? But if you're, if you're surprised in a surprise round, you're not casting anyway. So that's right. that's a separate element from being a caster. So, yeah, casters have that going for them. Yeah. (laughs) So here's the question. What breaks concentration? According to the book, if you take damage, your concentration is broken. 
if you get hit with a spell effect, even if it doesn't do damage, if it just affects you, that could break concentration. A failed saving throw, if something hits you and you get to save and you fail it, that that affects it. And even something like vigorous motion, like riding a horse or being on a boat in rough water or just being jostled and, and knocked into while you're trying to cast, all of those can break concentration. And if it happens in the round where that where the caster is actually casting, but the spell hasn't completed yet, then then it it's going to interrupt, right? Right, right. And the spell is lost for the day. That's right. a big hit. Yeah. Yeah, it's not even... Uh, so basically the book says you the, the CK may allow a concentration check, right? Um, to see if either A, the spell is disrupted, but not lost. That is... You know, spellcasters, you know, wizards, for example, they have to prepare their spells in the morning and then they've got those set in their mind. If they get interrupted, it's possible that the interruption was so disturbing that it actually uh, caused the spell to be disrupted and you lose it. But it's at the CK's, you know, basically the CK's choice, whether the spell is disrupted and lost, disrupted and not lost. Or not even interrupted. That is, if you make your, if they allow you a save and you make your save, then you don't even get interrupted and you don't lose the spell. The spell can be completed. I, I didn't realize that, and that's really kind of favorable. Yeah, they really do leave it up to the CK. This section is part of the reason why I thought it was important to talk about this section is it's kind of vague. It's it's kind of vaguely specific which is kind of a weird way to say it, but the way it's written is it makes it seem like this is a really hard and fast rule, but ultimately it's all about what the CK, what kind of game the CK wants to run. The CK doesn't have to make the spellcaster declare. So if that person takes damage before they even start, before their turn gets there, they could say, well, that's before I even started the spell. So it's not disrupted. Right. Or the CK could say, well, you were preparing that so you could make a save. And if you make a save, maybe it got disrupted, but you don't lose it. Right. That's all up to the CK. There's not a hard and fast rule, really. And I, I think when I was playing AD&D second edition, I don't think our DM was very lenient at all. I think it was if you were injured, you lost the spell. Mm-hmm. Like there was no recourse. Yeah. There was it was gone. Yeah. Um, so. And that's an option here too, right? Right. That That's an option here too. Uh, rules is written. That's an option. Because it says, if something interrupts the character's concentration while they're casting, the spell is lost and it gets marked off their prepared spell list. It fizzles basically and it's gone for the day. Right. Um, and if – so that's actually a way for – if the CK just says, I don't even want to deal with concentration rules. I don't want to deal with any kind of – you know, specifics or peculiarities or any kind of weird concentration stuff. If you get hit, you have to declare when you're casting. And if you get hit before the spell gets completed, it just disrupts it no matter what. There's no save. There's no nothing. And that creates a very different play style than a game where that wasn't the case. Because if that's the play style, that means that all the characters are protecting that wizard. If the wizard says, look, guys, in the first round, I'm going to cast this spell. And you need to protect me because if I roll low on my initiative, I have to be concentrating on casting that spell the whole round. So protect me. And that's very different from, hey, guys, go off and charge the enemy and just leave me alone so I can cast this spell in peace. Right. That's very different play style. Oh, yeah, totally. And I I haven't seen anyone being that protective of their wizard. Well, 
I'm going to say wizard, but caster, mm-hmm. you know, usually they're hung out to dry with the, uh, we're all charging the enemy. And one of my favorite tactics as a CK is go after the guy who's out in the open. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if there's a person standing on the enemy side who is obviously like wearing robes and holding a staff and lifting their arms out and trying to do some kind of somatic component, that person's a target. (laughs) That person's a target. (laughs) Um, So there's another aspect to concentration that is – that that we should talk about, and that is not when you're casting, but after you've cast a spell – because anything, because there are a few spells, just a handful, granted, but a few spells that you have to concentrate while the spell is has its duration going. There aren't very many, okay? So Bind Elemental is one of them, which is a fifth-level wizard spell. Detect Secret Doors, a first-level cleric spell. Um, emotion, Hypnotic Pattern, Minor Illusion, and Silent Image, which are all illusionist spells. Uh, Mage Hand, which is a wizard cantrip, and Storm of Vengeance, which is a high-level druid spell. All of those require concentration after the spell has been cast to maintain the effect of that spell. There's also just a couple of things that, if they've been cast, you don't have to maintain concentration unless you want to change something about the spell. For example, the Control Wind spell, which is a druid fifth-level spell, it allows you to alter the direction or strength of the wind, but in order to alter it, you have to basically concentrate for the casting time again. Uh, Similar with Wall of Fire, which is a Druid 5 and Wizard level 4 spell. If you cast Wall of Fire, it's like the other walls, and it'll just stay there for its duration, unless you want to, it has kind of a maintain effect. You can actually concentrate to maintain the flames. You can't do that with the other walls, wall of force, wall of stone, all that. Those go away after their duration. But wall of fire is special in that way. You can actually keep those magical flames going by concentrating on that spell. Um, And then lastly, if you do a summon familiar, if you're a wizard with a familiar, uh, you can actually have an empathic link with the familiar. And for the moments or for the time that you want to have an empathic link with your familiar, you have to be concentrating on. And so when you're concentrating on any of those spells or to change any of those spell effects, you are subject to losing that by being damaged or interrupted or whatever. The same way that that you could lose that because you you know when you're casting the spell in the first place. So not very many, you know, I know that some, some of the later editions, they have a lot of spells with concentration effects. Fifth edition D&D, for example, has a ton of spells with a concentration effect. And it's the same deal here where you can't cast a spell if you're concentrating on another one. That's a very similar rule to fifth edition, which, by the way, Castle and Crusades existed before fifth edition, but whatever, that's fine. Uh, and so, but here's the thing. So that's all fine. But in C&C, there's just a handful. I mean, that's like five spells or something that require concentration and, or maybe it's six, but then, you know, four of them are illusionist spells which makes sense because you're concentrating on maintaining that illusion so all right anything else you want to say about spells spell casting or concentration yeah i think that really sums it up um with with the different spells i, I think we really covered that well okay it's something that often gets a lot of questions because it because it is so sort of vague specific Right, that it it purports to have very specific rules, but then uh, you can actually interpret them in multiple different ways. Which is actually, uh, I say that and it sounds like a drawback, but to me that's a feature. Right, that's a feature of CMC. I think just one little tidbit is that when you're casting a spell, you can't move. Right, 
you you are fully dedicated to casting the spell. Right. And that actually that brings us to our next sort of topic, which is movement types. And George brings up a very good point. When you are in combat, you cannot do more than one thing per round, except for one exception. Okay. And that exception is you can move half your speed and still attack. But other than that, whatever you're doing that combat round, that's what you're doing that round. And you cannot mix and match type. You can't cast and move or move and look for something in your bag or move and use an object, right? You can't. You're just, you're either moving or you're doing something else. And if you're moving, you're not doing anything else. And if you're doing something else, you're not moving. Having said that, there are different types of movement in CNC. There's walking, jogging, and running. George, what's the difference between walking, jogging, and running? Uh, walking is your normal speed. Uh, jogging is twice your movement speed and running is up to four times your normal move. Yeah. And if you're a human, half orc, half elf, or elf, your typical movement is 30. And if you're a dwarf, gnome, or halfling, your typical movement is 20. The thing about movement is it can be affected by encumbrance. So if you, we're not going to go into the, in detail into the encumbrance rules, but just as a note, if your CK does use the encumbrance rules, if you are unburdened, there is no effect on your movement. If you're burdened, uh, among other things, there is a negative 10 foot movement penalty, but it can't reduce your movement below five. Okay. So you can always move at least five feet per round. And if you're overburdened, then your movement rate is five. It doesn't go below five, but it is five. So if you're carrying a lot of stuff, you're not going to be able to move very fast, which is why actually the running, for example, running is four times your normal movement. Well, if your movement is down to five because you're so burdened, well, that means even if you're running, you're only making it 20 feet because things are so heavy and it's so hard for you to move. Yeah, it makes sense though. I, I can see that dwarf running with, you know, sacks of gold and other treasure and uh you know the gold pieces falling on the floor as he's <laughs> running overburdened you know 20 uh 20 feet per round at a run yeah now in combat you can do any of these rates of movement as long as you're not engaged in melee so rules is written there aren't really any restrictions on your movement unless you're already engaged in melee combat if you're not engaged in melee and you want to move, you can walk or you can run or you can jog. You can lay on the floor and crawl. You can do any of those things that you want to do as long as you're not engaged in melee. If you're engaged in melee, then it becomes different, right? Um, I'll also note that just as a just as a as a side note, movement, we're talking about movement during combat, but also it's the same during non-combat if you're if you're in a dungeon, if you're outdoors. Uh, your unencumbered movement is about two miles per hour. And so everything, uh, the movement outdoors in terms of exploration, everything is based off of that base movement rate. Um, but that's not combat. So we're going to skip that, talk about that a little, little bit later. But the reason that we're talking about movement is because everybody always needs to move in combat, right? There's almost never a case when a combat encounter starts and everybody's exactly where they want to be and nobody ever moves. Like that's just not, that's not how it works. That typically things are much more dynamic and you want to move around and you want to get a good position. And sometimes you get knocked down and there's all of these rules surrounding that. And so that's why I bring up as long as the CK says it's okay, you can walk, run or jog anywhere as long as you're not already engaged in melee, because if you're engaged in melee, you have to do a special action to disengage from melee. 
So typically in combat, the only thing you can do while moving is you can move up to half your speed and then attack. That means if your movement was 30, if your walking speed is 30, you can move up to 15 feet and still attack. If you move more than 15 feet, you cannot attack. That's all you're doing is moving. Okay. Except if you charge, how does one charge? Rule one, you got to an- announce it before initiative is rolled. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Yes, you do. That's good. <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> That's because charging reduces your AC by four whole points for the whole round. And and that is that is a big sacrifice. Uh, you know, a minus four to your AC, you're kind of out in the open. Yeah. And that's a minus four to every attack for that whole round, every attack against you, not just against your opponent that you're charging at. So if they, if the opponent has allies of that opponent, if the opponent has allies like shooting crossbows at you, they're also getting the benefit of that negative four AC that's applying to you. Yeah, that, that's a lot. Yeah. The benefit to charging is twofold. You get to move your full distance and still attack. You could even actually move times two your distance. So you can jog. You cannot run, but you can jog. And it has to be in a straight line. You take a negative four to your AC, but you get a plus two bonus to your damage. You don't get any bonus to your to hit roll. Okay. So it's a very risky move. But what it does is it allows you to get to the heart of the battle right away without having to take an entire turn to move close, but not quite be able to attack. Now, the thing is that this is one of those places in the book where they contradict themselves because on page 218, which is where charging is described, it's also described on page 221, but on page 218, it implies that you can run while you're doing this action. But then later in the very same paragraph, in fact, it says the word running, jogging or running, it says. But then in, later in the paragraph, it's the very same paragraph, and in the paragraph afterwards, it clarifies you cannot run. The most you can do is jog. So that's two times your movement. So if your movement's 30, you can charge at something 60 feet away. Okay? You have to move at least your full regular movement. So you can also charge at something 40 feet away because that's more than your regular movement of 30. So you can move 30 or more than 30, but not more than 60. It implies, and the way it's written, that you can run, which would be four times your movement rate, which would be 120 feet if your movement rate was 30. That's not true. That, That is a clarification later in the same paragraph. You cannot, you cannot run. You can only jog. Okay. And it's not a guaranteed hit because you don't get any bonus to your attack roll. It just allows you to get to the target sooner, okay? Because normally you can only move half your speed and attack. So if your speed is 30, you can only move 15 and attack. If that thing is 45 feet away, it's going to take you two rounds of movement or a round of movement and then a second round to move and attack, right? Rather than charging would only take you that one round to get there. So it's a calculated risk that you have to take in order to make that worthwhile. So, applying what we learned, Samuel, <laughs> if I'm using a greatsword mm-hmm. and my opponent has a pike and I decide to charge him, mm-hmm. I'm charging at the pike. I'm minus four to AC. He has a pike, which is listed as um, polearm over 10 feet long. Right. And uh, he also has an option of... Deals double damage if firmly re- set to receive a charge. Mm-hmm. This, yep. this will end badly for me with my greatsword. 
Probably because you're at a negative four AC when you're making that charge. And he can easily set to receive that charge. That's correct. That can be his action. And because he's got a pole arm, even if you rolled higher in initiative, when you first to first engage in melee in that round, he gets to go first. Yeah. Yeah. So charging is really rough if the opponent is at all expecting you. Uh, or or, ha or has a pole arm, right? If they if they're not expecting, if you're charging at someone's back, it's probably not going to be a big deal, right? And if they have nobody covering them, but if they have someone covering them and you're running across a field, right, to get to your opponent, and you're taking a negative four AC, and they turn around and they have a pole arm, yeah, you're in a bad way. That's going to be yeah. real tough. Yep. You better yell before you do it and be like, is that more than 10 feet long? You know, <laughs> Take out your tape measure as you're running up to him. Wait, wait, hold on. <laughs> is that a halberd? <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So so let's move on. So charging is is great, but risky. If you use rules as written, a lot of people just let it happen. Okay, you charge. Fine, you charge in, right? Uh, if you want your combat to be very dynamic and have very few drawbacks, then that's what you do, right? Uh, we are just talking about the rules as written. The rules as written say very specific things about charging. Um, what happens if you do get tripped and you get knocked prone? Oh, that's bad. That's a minus 10. Well, it depends on well, how you look at it. A minus 10 to your armor class or a well, plus 10? Well, I just meant in terms of movement. Oh. How do you stand up? It's a half move to stand back up and react. Right. And there is an exception to that. There's an exception to that in the trip rules, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. Before we do that, I'd like to finish talking about movement. And so let's discuss disengagement. So there are three things that you have to know about disengagement. Disengagement as in you're in melee. How do you get away from your melee opponent? The first thing to note is that is that you have to declare that you are disengaging and you have to declare what type of disengagement you are going to attempt, okay? There are two types of disengagement, hasty disengagement and fighting disengagement. And either way, whichever one you do, you have to declare it before you roll initiative. And no matter what your initiative role is, the disengagement occurs at a 10, it, it occurs at the top of the round in initiative. So anybody who's disengaging has to declare because it's going to happen first, okay? No matter what your initiative role is, it happens first. I don't know why they even have you roll initiative, but they have you roll initiative and then it happens first anyway. So here's the thing. Hasty disengagement means you can move away from your opponent as fast as you want. You can even run. However, the opponent gets an attack against you as you disengage, okay? Now, if they hit and they don't kill you, it does not stop your movement, but they still get the attack. And then you get to run away as far as you want to go up to your running speed. A fighting disengagement, you can only move half your movement or less. So if your movement is 30, you can only move 15 feet away. But you get no attack from your opponent. But remember, this happens at the top of the round. So then if your opponent rolled an eight in initiative, pretty soon they're going to just be able to walk right back up to you if they want to, right? But they never got an attack on you in the first place. So it's a little bit safer. You just don't get to go as far. And, and the drawback is, if I'm getting understanding this correctly, it would be that you're getting your fighting, you know, half move or less, okay? Mm -hmm. That opponent can make a half move as well 
and come up and hit you, possibly. Right. And right. On the their turn. Is, on their turn, correct. Presuming, presuming they survive, right? Presuming yes. they survive. Um, yeah. And then also speed comes in as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, depending if you're a human or smaller than, you know, man-sized. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, it depends on how far you're going to get and also your opponent. I'm trying to think of an opponent with a move of 20. Let's just say it's a, why not an evil halfling? Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> you may be able to get away. <laughs> right. Yeah. Cause half their movement would be 10. So if you yeah. move 15 away, they can only move 10 and still attack. So they could still move up to you, but not attack you again that round. Correct. Also, I should mention when you make a fighting disengagement, you don't reduce your AC, but when you make a hasty disengagement, you reduce your AC by two. So not only do you get to run as far away as you want, but the opponent gets an attack and you have a lower AC. Whereas a fighting disengagement, you only get to move half your movement, but you don't take any AC penalty. And you're basically the time to do that is when another one of your allies is around that same enemy so that they're not likely to follow you. Right. That's the time to do that. You wouldn't just be one-on-one and then just run away 10 feet, and then that person's just going to walk up to you again in the next round, right? That doesn't get you anywhere unless you're trying to lead them to a certain place, right? If you're trying to lead them to a certain position in the battlefield so that one of your comrades can push them into a big fire pit or can, you know, get the, get them within range of somebody who who's trying to use a bow or something like that's where, that's where that tactical idea comes in, right? Where you could use fighting disengagement to sort of see if you can get the uh, the opponent to follow you, but that's a safe way to do it because they don't really you don't doesn't lower your AC and it doesn't really put you in any bad positioning. Whereas a hasty disengagement, you can get away real fast, but you're going to get an attack on you no matter what. And in fact, if you're hastily, you know, this is this is part of why earlier when I said as long as the CK allows it, you can walk, jog or run on your turn as your action no matter what. But here's the thing. That's if you're not engaged in melee. But as you're running, if you run by within five feet of someone else, you're now in melee with them, technically speaking, and you're suddenly doing a hasty disengagement. So your AC will go down and that person will get an attack on you as you run by. So. That's why I kind of said, if the CK allows it, right, you can't just run in and out of opponents and get within reach of them and, you know, weave in and out and not have any consequences for that. That's that's part of where hasty disengage would trick would trigger, even if you didn't mean it to. So you do have to still be careful, even though you could run around the battlefield. You do still have to be careful who you're engaged with. Right. OK, so those are the disengagements. Is there anything else that you would like to say about? either initiative or casting time or concentration or movement. I I think just be ready to use them. If you're going to use them to keep the game moving. Excellent. Also excellent advice. All right. Until next time, keep the can of Dr. Pepper cold and keep reaching for that pole arm. (laughs) Awesome. Never charge a troll. (laughs) And don't charge the troll. (laughs) 